right. So, uh, all right. So you ready for the whating and everything? I'm ready for the whating. <laughs> Please what me. <laughs> well, this is a great opening. <laughs> this is a great opening. We are naturals at this. <laughs> Listen, we were born to podcast. We were born. Our our witty rapport is natural and not at all forced. That's true. Recorded in our Nerdhaven studios, this is Pop Medieval with your hosts, Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina McIntyre, discussing the intersection of medieval literature and pop culture on a semi-weekly basis. And now, back to your podcast. Yeah, you know, uh, listeners can't tell, but we have basically been talking for a half an hour now in a completely unforced and natural way. And as soon as, <laughs> even when we hit record and we were talking, we were fine. But as soon as we do the countdown, then suddenly it gets weird. It's because we're not in the same room anymore. We can't play off of each other. That's true. What we yeah. really need is we need Engineer Mike to not tell us that he's recording and just sort <laughs> of have a boom mic and sneak it over us in the middle of a conversation. That's, that's what he needs to do. We, we just need to be mic'd at all times and hologrammed into the room. That's a good idea. Yeah. I need... I need I need to. I'm the one problem with that is I'm a little afraid that my my hologram will will be the singularity and it will kind of take over my personality and I I will become redundant. It'll have to kill me. I I don't think that's a problem. I think you can just retire if you had a hologram of yourself and it took over because then you Maybe. wouldn't have to deal you wouldn't have to deal with students anymore. Answer to Mike, this is there any way you can make this hologram thing happen? It's sounding more and more appealing all the time. I think he'll get to work on it. <laughs> what are we talking about today, Doc? Uh, today, we're going to talk about the Staffordshire Horde. And Ooh. Yes. So Horde as in mass of people running around screaming with axes no, and picks? This is H-O-A-R-D, uh, oh. H-O-R-D-E, which is the other cool thing about the Middle Ages. A time oh, of like hordes and hordes. Oh, a mass of, of stuff is what you're talking about. Yes. So we're about, uh, this is around the 10-year anniversary of the discovery of the Staffordshire Horde, um, which was 2009. I say about, it's hard to put an exact date on it because I think like July 5th of 2009, uh, we're recording this in September of 2019, uh, was when it was discovered. And then there was a little back and forth where they were contacting you know, uh, authorities. And then when they found out about it, then they kept everything secret for a while because they were afraid of looters getting in there. Uh, and then finally sometime, I, I can't tell you the exact date. I probably could have efforted that and looked it up, but, uh, <laughs> uh, the exact date, but, uh, sometime in 2009, like the news broke and like the, the entire medievalist world was just basically caught on fire. The whole all we of were Twitter just on crazy. Twitter. Well, there was no Twitter. We were all a flicker on Flickr because oh my God. Uh, what they were doing. So maybe I should explain what the horde is, and then I'll explain about Flickr. Please so, do. Yeah, actually, we might. <laughs> is Flickr still around? I might. That also might need more. Flickr is still around. Flickr is still flickering. Okay. The um, so the Staffordshire horde was was it was in England. Uh, where a metal detectorist uh, was metal detecting in his metal friend's detectorist. field. Metal detectorist. Yes. Is that is that a thing? Well, since then, because of this, the Staffordshire Horde, because of what happened, suddenly metal detectoring 
became this huge thing in England after this because everyone thought they were going to find one of these things. Uh, and so there was there's a show, a British show, which was exported to the U.S. And I saw a few episodes, a comedy show called Detectorists. So I assume that that's the word of art, but it, that might also be a joke. Um, I don't think that was a big hit over here. No, and it, it wasn't that funny. Uh, it, was, it, had, it had moments, but I, I watched like a handful of episodes and I thought yes, it oh, came okay. over with The Office, you know, giant hits like The Office and yeah. In the Loop and all that. Yes. So uh, but suddenly, like uh, every middle aged person, actually every young person in England suddenly had a metal detector everywhere they went uh, in case a, a sudden treasure might pop up. So anyway, they found this guy's searching around the field, his friend's field, and he finds uh Gold and not a little gold, thousands of gold artifacts all in a kind of uh, I think it's like a 40 foot by 30 foot area. Um, Literally gold in them thar hills. Yes. And it was just gold like no other part. Nothing that wasn't gold was found. Wait, I have a lot of negatives. I think I said that right. Uh, a lot Did of you gold. speak English, right? Eventually, I'll get around to learning that language. Uh <laughs> And uh, so uh, they kept, you know, they contacted, uh, I think, Birmingham. I can't remember. They contacted, uh, uh, you know, some archaeologists who get out there and they discovered that it was all these Anglo-Saxon artifacts. And um, just the, the, the amount was staggering. It is the largest find ever. Uh, I think it's the largest silver and, go or silver and gold find Um in Europe ever, I think. And it's the largest medieval find uh, for sure. Uh, and the, it was so, I, no one knew how much it was. I, I was reading an account by one scholar who was brought into the museum to help process the things. And he asked how much there were and they said there were 240. And he thought he was going to get there and it's like, wow, 240 artifacts. And he got there and it was 240 boxes and bags pulled out of artifacts. Wow. It was just huge amounts of thousands and thousands and thousands of these. Now, the number we could say is smaller now because the most, uh, a bunch of them were put together to make a helmet. So some of them, as we've been able to reconstruct them over the years, we found that it wasn't, it was, wasn't thousands of objects uh, in, in the beginning, but it's, it was thousands by the time we found it. Um, and it was this huge, it was, it was this huge sensation. Um, and so what they did was because this was such big news, it was because it was gold, it was big in the popular press. But just because of this, I, I mean, I'm not an archaeologist as a, you know, as a lit guy, I only study fake stuff. But the, like everybody, no matter what your field was, if you were a medievalist, we were just fascinated by this. And so what they were doing was there was so they were being pestered so much for information was as soon as they pull something out and clean it off they'd uh you know they'd give it a uh like a a shelf number or something to to mm -hmm. to number the the artifacts uh they'd take a picture of it with a uh, it was kind of like a ruler grid system so you could see about the size and dimensions of it uh and they'd post it to Flickr and so I would I remember that that semester very well like I would get out of class and I would just every five minutes be hitting refresh on the Flickr page to see what new things and the the texts and messages were 
flying back and forth between medievalists like, oh, did you see this thing? Or what do you think that is? And honestly, I was in college at this time. I remember this. Yeah, it was super exciting. Uh, I was super excited. It was it was big. It was really big news. And that was 10 years ago. Um, and uh, it really has. Um, the truth is, it's given us some more information, but not it confirms some things that that we might have suspected. Uh, but uh, I read one archaeologist who said the the con I'm going to get the quote wrong. So it's a good thing. I can't remember what her name was. Uh, who said the <laughs> paraphrase. Right, better paraphrase. The, yes. The paraphrase said something like the context of the Staffordshire horde is the Staffordshire horde there. We don't have anything else to compare it to. Like there's mm-hmm. also the Sutton who find, which has lots of treasures, in it, but it's so different from this that we have nothing else. We we're not sure how it got there. Um, so let me describe what's in it. It's, yeah, it's all uh, bits of gold and uh, decoration that were parts of weapons like a helmet or something that would be in part of an inlay on a sword hilt or that kind of thing. And there's no iron in it. So the weapons are gone. There's nothing in there that doesn't have immediately to do with warfare. The only I think maybe the only single object there that is not something that is directly a weapon a stuck on a weapon is there's a cross uh, that has a, Lat- a Christian Latin inscription on it. Um, and it's uh, the, it, it, the, the inscription has to do with war and giving us victory over our enemies. Uh, so even that one item is, it's very weird because normally we find like a few things, no matter what you find, you find like needles or, or which is valuable uh, mm-hmm. Or things that are associated with, 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 uh, uh, with women, or things that are associated with daily life. Or nope, this is only stuff associated with war, and we're not sure how it got there. Uh, there's a, there's more than one theory that the, the two I guess that are still most prominent. One is, the this one, this one I, I struggle to see how it works, but a lot of people who know more than I do hold to it, which is that, well. They were going to battle and they were afraid they're going to lose. And so what they did was they took all their gold off of their weapons so they wouldn't get looted. Uh, mm-hmm. And then somehow they hid those and then they all died or they couldn't find it and it was lost forever. The other one is, well, maybe it was booty from a battle and they stripped all this from the enemy's weapons. And then somehow the bag or whatever it was in was lost uh, and uh, so this wasn't found in a tomb. This wasn't found no. in any burial rite. Nope. Type. No, we don't know exactly how it got there. Uh, so it's very, it's very mysterious in in that way. This is another reason we have context. It would be uh, in Mercia, which is one of the seven Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. It's kind of in the middle of the country, um, and it's and because of because of the Christian scripture, we know that at least one side was Christian. Um, and this would have been, you know, uh, I think sixth century, uh, fifth, sixth century. And so, um, because of that, you know, we're, we're talking early, uh, relatively, uh, early days of Christendom. I think I just got those dates wrong. Uh, I'll have to effort that later. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, what but, editing is for. Yes, that's what it's for. Uh, for our barely edited podcast here. <laughs> anyway, and so it's really mysterious, but it's yielded all these really beautiful artifacts. Um, and one thing, the really, the really interesting thing it tells us is like in a lot of, uh, stories and literature, there are all these tales about like, Oh, the gold weapons of the other side. And, uh, you know, in like in Beowulf when he finds the dragon's hoard and it's full of gold and these sorts of things. And we always assume that was some kind of poetic license, right? That, uh, you know, that, that you wouldn't really have those kind of valuable things on your weapons. Well, at least in some cases, it wasn't poetic. Like, legitimately, that happened. And these are not in a place where you would think, like a tomb or something, right? Where it was intentionally placed. So, at one time, they were on weapons, presumably, that were used. Uh, So, it's really... uh, So, it, it... it did teach us that maybe some of the poetic license wasn't as much license as we thought, but was describing things that really, that really happened. Uh, Either that or there was just someone super fabulous who wanted to carry all of his best (laughs) jewelry into war with him at the time. That's true. The helmet is really fabulous. They've reconstructed the helmet. Uh, Do we have the, uh, we're going to have little videos from the British library, right? On the, yeah, Absolutely. uh, yeah, we're going to include those in our show notes. On the show notes, yeah. Mm-hmm. So people can go and look at them, and so you can see the helmet as it's reconstructed and a few other cool things uh, like that. Um, although, although I would say that if you're really interested in this, the problem is if you're not going to the academic sources and not looking at pictures, a lot of the popular sources are kind of stupid because they'll say things like, uh, because these were all on weapons – we think this might have something to do with warfare or they'll say things like, uh, clearly this hell, uh, in the, in the old Anglo-Saxon period, gold was considered high status. Like really? There was a lot of LARPers in the 600s AD. (laughs) Right. They loved to wear their best gold to just run around the hills of Staffordshire. Yes. So that was the, uh, anyway, so that was the Staffordshire horde, uh, where it came from. Do we have any idea how much this weighs in, you know, dumb American pounds? I have pounds. no idea how much it actually, like, it, like in, in, in mass, I actually don't yeah. know. Do you happen to have that? I, I have no idea. I, I'm looking on here. It says uh, 5,094 kilos. Um, and That's got to be, yeah, that's gold. like an ounce. That's like... S- that's like a thousand, a million pounds. I, I don't know. <laughs> a million pounds. What is that's, this? Yeah. I don't know what this is in America. I think uh, that's, you know. I think that's about 11,000 pounds. Yeah. About 11,230 pounds of gold. And then 1,400. Right? Really? I think so. Yeah. If I did my calculation correctly. And then about 1,400 kilos of silver. So yeah, about uh, 3,000 pounds of silver. Yeah, so it was really uh, it was big. It was a lot, and it was worth a lot of money. And yeah, tell me about that. How, who who gets paid for this, and how much, and how does that work out? Okay, so so first I'll tell you how much it was worth, and then I'll tell you how it got to be that way. So, um, it was worth about four million dollars, just over four million bucks. Uh, I'm so glad you led with dollars and yes. not. 
And then it Pound got sterling. It's three million and some other kinds of change of pounds that works out to, you know, the dollars. And then the guy who found it and the guy who owns the property, they split the money, uh, which I think that, that they have to split the money is is governed by law. But the law is what's really interesting. One thing that that is really fascinating is uh, England did something really, I think, really wise. Uh, so in most of Europe, to be clear, I am not in any I'm not in any way condoning black market sales of uh, of antiquities. He might not be, but I sure. Right. Yeah. But uh, in most of Europe, you know, if you find something pragmatically speaking, maybe not ethically speaking, but pragmatically speaking, rather than having it get seized by the state, you're best off selling that on the black market and getting what you can for it. And this is the way it was in England. And they had this big problem with black market sales of antiquities. And and, and just like the rest of Europe, what they did was really rigorously enforced the law to try to like crack down on people doing this. Well, in 1996, uh, they they uh, passed a law that was called the the Treasure Act and Treasure Act and I think Antiquity Scheme or something like that. Uh, this 1996 Act, and basically what it was is it set up this committee. It's called the Treasure Valuation Committee, which is really cool name. Uh, and the way it works is if you find something, it's kind of similar to eminent domain in the, in the States where Mm -hmm. if you find something you are now required, you're required by law as you always have, as you always have been to report that. However, the treasure valuation committee puts a value on that and they, and then they have a certain amount of time. I think it's a matter of two or three months. I can't recall exactly the amount of time, but they have a certain amount of time, museums and such, to buy it off of you and you must sell it to them. Uh, but the prices are are pretty fair. Now, I think there's an argument to be made that this price was, that the $4 million was not fair because this is absolutely priceless in, in a sense. But, I mean it was pretty good money and I don't know how you would otherwise value it. I mean, it's literally so priceless. There's no way to, to truly value it. So in that sense, I think it was fair. Uh, Cause mm-hmm. what else? Or, I mean, if someone said it's worth $40 million, I'd have been like, yeah, sure. Uh, that makes equal sense to me. Uh, $45 so, billion. Dollars. Yeah. And so random randomize the numbers. Right. And so basically you could, if you're in England, break the law and sell it on the black market. But then you can get in trouble. In this case, you can openly sell it and you get the money free and clear with no trouble. And so to give you a sense of how successful this act has been, um, before 1997, so the, the, the act is passed in 96. I keep saying law, act, I should say. The act is passed in 96. So before that time, there were an average of 26 fines uh the, an average of, of 26 fines, uh, not the word I'm looking for, uh, promoted, uh, promoted, not there, uh, uh, reported, reported per year. Mm-hmm. Um, after they passed this, that number jumped so that the average is somewhere uh, from, from, is north of uh, 1,000 per year since then. So, for example, Holy 20, cow. yeah, 2018, 
uh, was, I think, uh, 1,116, uh, yeah, 1,116 uh, reports to the Treasury Valuation Committee. And about 95% of those are from just amateur metal detectorists out there thinking, I could find something and legally I can get paid for it. And they're pretty good. About, like the average find, the value of the average find last year uh, was $3,281. So that's the average find value. That is amazing. Yeah. So basically. You're not just encouraging people to follow the law and do this legally, but you're also locating these precious and priceless artifacts. Yeah, and, uh, you know, honestly, actually, England, I understand this. I don't understand the motivation. They they still have a problem with what they call nighthawks, which are these metal detectorists. I think nighthawks maybe sneak onto public lands that they're not supposed to be on. You know, like, mm-hmm. I'll sneak around to Stonehenge and try to find something or something like that. I think that might be what they're doing uh, because they still have a little problem with some black market sales that they – are, that they try to crack on. I, I honestly don't know why you would when you could do it completely legally, uh, get the money. And in this case, these guys got a crazy amount of money uh, for this. You know, they suddenly became pretty wealthy. And uh, the guy, as I recall, the guy who found it, I'm, I might be getting this wrong. Uh, others can Google it. I believe the guy who owned the property wanted his identity kept secret because he didn't want to be harassed. But the guy who found it, I think, did not. But I'm, I'm, I'm. This is ten year, ten year old news for me. Uh, but anyway, because of that, like, so since that time, when you're looking at places where where there's great um, archaeological finds, uh, medieval archaeological finds, particularly, I mean, you're uh, there are some in other places, but like England, you get a lot of them. And this is why. And if they don't come up with the money in time, and sometimes if there's like just another just another brooch or just another thing. Sometimes museums won't want to buy it. And after that time is up, I believe they can just sell it on the private market uh, mm-hmm. openly. And so, um, and so if you want to go online and you want to buy, if you got a, a, a couple hundred bucks and you want to buy yourself a genuine piece of Anglo-Saxon jewelry, it's possible to do that. Uh, and it's possible to do that legally. Whereas if you're buying something from off the continent, Obviously, there's also a legal trade in these things, but you got to be real, real careful about the provenance. I mean, you should always be careful about the provenance of antiquities, but like in England, you've got a lot more security of knowing, hey, this was not stolen. This is not obtained illegally. This is not a black market trade. Uh, So, um, you know, can't predict the future, but I would guess that the next big archaeological find in Europe uh, is going to be in England, too, for exactly this reason, because look, they're all, you know, uh, if you've got a metal detector, why not get out there and you get a decent chance of finding hundreds or thousands of dollars worth of stuff. I mean, most people are not going to find millions of dollars worth of stuff, but they're going to find it. Right. So now I know what I want for Christmas. Yeah. And (laughs) a metal detector or a medieval brooch. (laughs) Oh, well, definitely the brooch. I mean, I don't have time to go out in this heat and well, I don't have time to go to England and, and start searching for things with a metal detector. So I just want to say, you know, if anyone out there wants to donate to the show, we don't have a Patreon or anything. Not but yet. We would, we would take gold inlaid metal detectors, matching gold inlaid metal detectors for us. Uh, Cloisonne you know. garnets. 
Yes, there we go. What is what is this? What's cloisonne? Uh, it's Isn't that a metal... kind of sauce you put on French foods? It's delicious. Yes, mm. it's metalwork, metalwork inlaid design work for beadwork, for fine, precious gemstones, that sort of thing. You know, interestingly, like just before we were talking about cloisonne, just before we started recording, and I was looking at stuff, there are a lot of great Pinterest pages where people have posted, you know, cloisonne artifact images. And so, uh, you know, weirdly, it's one of the few things I'd say, hey, go to Pinterest uh, if you want <laughs> if you want to see good images. Of course, the British, uh, uh, you know, the British Museum has got all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, Birmingham, uh, what's the museum in Birmingham that has a lot of the... the uh, the, the PMAG? Stuff. Is it the PMAG? I know the initials are PMAG. Yeah, that might be it. So uh, we're, we're, we're here at we'll uh, the, the other side notes. of the Atlantic. Yeah, so uh, so I'm not, uh, I'm not certain about that. But yeah, so like 10 years ago, there was this incredible find of unbelievable amounts of gold. It was basically these this guy found a dragon horde. Uh, you know, actually, I think that's going to be my theory. It was, it was these guys went and tried to kill a dragon. And they lost and uh, mm. it sat on that horde. And that's what he discovered. That is that is my official uh, ruling with my non-archaeology degree. I wonder what happened to that poor dragon. Yeah, St. George probably took care of him. Mm. Maybe after the fact. Shame, shame. Well, what do you want to recommend, Doc? Uh, OK, so in terms of uh, recommendations, one thing that. Um, I think on our show notes, we're going to have some links to some articles or at least one article from there. But if you're listening to this, you would be interested in the website medievalists.net. It's uh, medievalists with an S plural dot net. Uh, it is, uh, you know, uh, run by real trained medievalists and it is designed uh, not so much for scholars, uh, although guys like me, we love to read it, but also for public outreach. And they have a whole uh, constellation of other things that go uh, along with it. Uh, videos and they have a podcast, which you'll probably end up talking about some other time uh, and uh, all sorts of resources. So if you are interested in what we're talking about here at all, medievalist.net is a good a good resource for you. Uh, we go way back with them. Yes. Like uh, I think we've known them since the founding since the founding yeah, of Wittan publishing yes yes and so Wittan publishing uh has got some things which are kind of adjacent to this uh what do you think Wittan has that we should we should plug today oh we definitely want to talk about risen student translation of beowulf yeah that's right so speaking of dragon hordes uh edward risden has a great student translation of beowulf it's specifically designed you know every time you do a translation you have to think about like how am I, am I going to do word for word or sense for sense or, and, and, and most important is audience. And Risden really worked hard to do one that was aimed at students so that students could understand. So uh, often when people say, uh, you know, I, I'm a, I just want to read, I just want to read it. I, you know, I, I haven't been assigned it. I just want to read it. I recommend Edward Risden's translation of Beowulf. Risden is R-I-S-D-E-N. Right. Yes. Yep. Okay. Yes. <laughs> suddenly, <laughs> suddenly, I second question. I second guess myself. I second questioned nope. it too. You second question. Yes, but no, you nailed it. Yeah. Do you have something you want to plug today? 
Yeah, I want to, on the subject of treasure hunts, I wanted to recommend not just a book, but I wanted to recommend the story behind a book, a book called Masquerade by Kit Williams, which was published in 1979 mm-hmm. when I was not even a ripple in the pool of the Lady of the Lake, Lady in the Lake. Um, <laughs> in this case, it would be Lake Michigan. So Lake Michigan, right yes, now. yes. Um, but, uh, no, this is a, a picture book and Kit Williams was a painter, an English painter. And in order, he, he was tired of just painting pictures and he did not want to publish a book that someone discarded uh, after flipping through it. He wanted to really make his audience look at his painting. So he devised a, uh, treasure hunt and he used his paintings as a cipher, as a puzzle. And with this book, one would go on a treasure hunt looking for a 18-karat gold rabbit buried somewhere in England. And over the next two years before this rabbit was located, um, people all over England rushed to use their metal detectors and rushed to find this, this buried rabbit. And um, eventually was found. And the story behind how it was found and over the next couple of years that's what I want our readers, not our readers, our, our podcast <laughs> listeners to uh, to um, look up on their own because that's an interesting story. Uh, and that's the story behind it I want people to look up. but um, So the rabbit was on, found. The rabbit was found. And that's where but, the story gets more interesting. But and apparently I, there's still lots of other yes. gold treasures out there. Yes, indeed. And I, I was thinking to myself, how interesting would it have been had someone just with their metal detectors looking for this rabbit, stumbled on the Staffordshire, Staffordshire hoard instead of this rabbit. It would have been just fascinating to uncover this giant hoard of however many, what, 4,000 pieces mm-hmm. of gold and silver instead of just this one itty-bitty 18-karat gold rabbit. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe he was looking for a second rabbit when he was out there. I have no idea what he was <laughs> looking for with his metal detector. Uh, you know, in in America, we have metal detectorists on the beaches sometimes, you know, looking yeah. for things that have washed up. But uh, we're unlikely to find it, they'd have to wash very far for some sort of Anglo-Saxon gold treasure to wash up uh, on an American beach. But I'm still hoping any day now, any day, any day. Now, k- kick over a rock in my backyard and and, and a Sutton who style helmet will poke out of the ground. Uh, the only thing I've found on beaches around here have been, you know, trash and broken seashells. Nothing interesting. Uh, yeah, you know, we're close enough down here to the Gulf Coast that uh, I've often also found um, people who decided they were going to give up their lives and uh, live a Jimmy Buffet, a Jimmy Buffett, Jimmy Buffett style, <laughs> Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy Buffet, right? A Jimmy Buffett style uh, lifestyle, pirate lifestyle, mm-hmm. and uh, soon found that that was basically meant being homeless near the beach. <laughs> so <laughs> I have seen some of those. Uh, so unless you have, a, unless you are, have a huge music ro- musical recording career, probably also need a job. Probably. You need that 18 karat gold rabbit to sell for something. That's true. All right. We have uh, anything else for tonight, for today? Uh, No, I, I think that about wraps it up. Thank you all for listening. All right. West through hall, Nina. West through hall, Doc.
Pop and Evil was recorded in our Nerd Haven studios. Hosts are Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina McNamara. Our audio engineer is Engineer Mike. The music is courtesy of Dr. John Ginwright. For more information, visit our website at profawesome.com slash popmedieval. That's P-R-O-F-A-W-E-S-O-M-E dot com slash popmedieval. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>